Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 17. If you're using the church Bibles, that's going to be found on page 69. We're going to be continuing our journey alongside Israel through the wilderness, from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. We're going to see Exodus 17 is kind of a transition chapter. Uh, as in Exodus 15 and 16 that we looked at last week, Israel again faces serious need and again complains against Moses. But in the previous chapters, it said God was testing Israel. Now it says Israel tests God. And then in the second part of this chapter, Israel encounters Amalek, uh, a tribe that is distant descendants of Esau. Then we're going to see next week in Exodus 18, Israel encounters Jethro, the Midianite priest, who is Moses' father-in-law, but is also a distant descendant of Abraham. And so in these two stories back to back, they encounter distant relatives. One attacks Israel, the other helps Israel on the journey. But chapter 17, it also kind of holds together. Moses' staff features prominently in both episodes. And together we see these two episodes, in these two episodes, a shift in Israel's relationship to Moses as their leader. Here now, Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out from it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book. 
or in a book rather, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's word. Uh, in this chapter, we see three simple truths, but each develops in a somewhat surprising way. The first truth is the Lord leads into the wilderness. The second, that the Lord provides for his people. And the third is that the Lord protects his people. First, I just want to pause on the first verse. The Lord leads into the wilderness. The Lord leads into the wilderness. The story begins, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. That's literally true. They moved by stages through the wilderness. But it's also symbolic. Israel is moving stage by stage. It's a process. They're a pilgrim people, a people on the way. Well, Hollywood has more or less taught us to expect a plot that goes something like this. Israel is trapped in Egypt. Israel crosses the Red Sea, uh, or, or, or Israel escapes from Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they arrive in the Promised Land, and they live happily ever after. But that's not what happens, is it? That's not how the story goes. After they cross the Red Sea, Israel moves by stages into the wilderness. They take the roundabout route through the wilderness, where they face a lack of food and water and danger from attacking enemies, from raiders. And it's no accident that Israel journeys into the wilderness where they face this lack and danger. At the end of verse 1, it says they moved into the wilderness by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. Why are they camping at this place where there's no water, where they face danger? Because the Lord commanded them to. Israel is a people on the way, a pilgrim people making a pilgrimage through the wilderness that's meant to train them to live in trust as God's people. He leads them into the wilderness where they face dangers and trials that shape his people. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul draws a parallel between what's happening to Israel in these chapters and our own life as Christians. He says when Israel crossed the Red Sea, it's like baptism. They both mark the beginning of the life of faith. And then he draws a connection between Israel's wilderness pilgrimage and our life of faith. God is in the business of delivering and redeeming people. It's what he does in the book of Exodus. It's what he does through Christ Jesus working a new Exodus. But salvation doesn't mean happily ever after, at least not in this life. God delivers his people and then he leads us into the wilderness to shape us, to teach us to trust him, to depend on him. Uh, we see this basic pattern of the life of faith confirmed in Jesus' own life. What happens right after he is baptized? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us, but I'm reading from Matthew. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay? Baptism marks the beginning of the life of faith, and then it means entrance into pilgrimage, life on the way, life in the wilderness. 
for Christians, the promised land is the life to come, restored creation, a new heavens and a new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem descended down, God dwelling with his people. But life in this world, in the here and now, is life in the wilderness. Okay, as Wesley puts it in The Princess Bride, life is pain. Anyone who tells you different is trying to sell something. And that more or less is true. Advertising constantly is trying to convince us that you can have true, lasting happiness here and now. If you buy the right pickup, if you wear the right deodorant, if you do the right whatever they're trying to sell you. But that's not the promise of the Christian life. The Christian life is we are saved, we're brought into loving relationship with God, and then led into the wilderness. That can take all kinds of shape. Lack, opposition, frustration, the journey into the wilderness, whatever form it might take in your particular situation, is ordinary and expected. It's a normal part of the life of faith. It's training and trust. Okay? So if you feel like you are in the wilderness now, if you feel like you're lacking, you're facing opposition, you're frustrated, that's a normal part of the life of faith. Don't give up. But these lessons aren't easily learned. If they were, uh, we wouldn't be in the wilderness very long. When the people find no water to drink here at Rephidim, they quarrel with Moses. We read that two times. The people quarreled with him. Moses asked, why are you quarreling with me? That word quarrel is used usually in the Old Testament as a sort of technical term for a legal case, uh, for uh, a, a lawsuit. So in chapters 15 and 16, Israel complains to Moses, but now here in chapter 17, they're making formal accusations against him. It's a sort of legal dispute. They're saying, look, you brought us out here, Moses, so you give us something to drink. It's on you. In fact, the situation is so serious that in verse 4, Moses says they are about to stone me. Okay? It's not just complaining. It's getting to the point of, uh, of sort of serious. They're on the verge of a riot. Except, of course, it isn't Moses who brought them out to Rephidim to camp. It was the Lord. And so Moses responds to them. It's you're not just quarreling with me. You're not just bringing a lawsuit against me. You are testing the Lord. We saw last week uh, in both those times that Israel complains, the narrator tells us the Lord was testing Israel and the Lord tests Israel to teach Israel, to instruct them. But Israel doesn't teach God. When Israel tests God, it's trying to force his hand to show himself in the way that they want. When we test the Lord, it's, it's, it's saying, I'm going to withhold my trust until you prove yourself to my standards, whatever those may be. Uh, we see this in Jesus' own third temptation. Remember what uh, the devil tempts him to do? He says, uh, well, the Gospels have it in different orders, but the third in Mark anyways is to jump off the high point of the temple. And he says, look, the Lord will catch you. He'll prove his power to you. And Jesus responds, don't test the Lord your God. Don't try to force him to prove himself in the way we want. Because God is God and we are not, we don't set the terms of our relationship with God. He saves and brings us into relationship with him, but it's a relationship on his terms that he's set up, that he's established. Well, in 177, it says that Israel tests the Lord in particular by asking, is the Lord with us or not? Think back if you've been here the shape of the book of Exodus thus far. And it seems like a bit of a strange question. 
The Lord has worked mighty signs and plagues in the land of Egypt. He's divided the Red Sea. He's provided a way for them to desalinate the waters at Meribah, or sorry, Merah. He's provided daily manna for them. And what do they say? Well, is the Lord with us or not? It's a reminder to us, though, as foolish as it may seem, that the Lord's discerning the Lord's presence is not always straightforward. Apparently, in all these acts, there was sufficient ambiguity that when faced with a new challenge, Israel asks, is the Lord with us or not? And isn't that true to the life of faith still? Despite what God has done in the past, we can face a new obstacle and we say, well, is the Lord with us or not? What's going on here? Well, again, looking back over the book of Exodus, the Lord has more than sufficiently demonstrated his faithfulness to Israel in a variety of ways. And so it's clearly inappropriate for Israel to test the Lord by asking, is he with us or not? And yet, instead of reprimanding Israel, the Lord provides for his people. That's the second truth I want you to see. The Lord provides for his people. First, the Lord provides water for his people. After the people accuse Moses, he cries to the Lord, what shall I do for this people? They are almost ready to stone me. What can I do for them? How do I give them water? Sounds a bit like the disciples when Jesus feeds the 5,000, doesn't it? How can we feed them? What can we do? Well, the Lord instructs Moses, pass on before the people, uh, that is, walk through the midst of these people who are about to stone you, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. When Moses struck the Nile with his staff, God made the Nile into undrinkable blood. But now when he follows the Lord leading up a certain wadi or ravine that's dry, and he strikes the rock face at the head of this wadi, water flows out and provides for God's people. Uh, Bible scholar Alec Matir describes this as an anticipatory providence. That is to say, millennia before, God knew that his people would pass by this way, that they would camp at Rephidim, that they would be thirsty and need water, and so placed an aquifer somewhere in this cliff face so that he could provide water for his people when the rock is struck. And yet he shows Moses where to find the water in a strange theophany. That's a technical term for an appearance of God. He says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. What does that mean? Did he appear in some sort of bodily form on the rock? Did the cloud that had been leading Israel settle on the rock? Could the elders see the Lord or only Moses? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, in one of his more puzzling passages, Paul comments on this story. Um, I already alluded to 1 Corinthians 10 earlier. Uh, coming back to this, remember Peter says uh, that some of the things Paul writes are real hard to understand, and this is probably one of those. He reflects on Israel's wilderness experience, and he says they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What lesson is Paul drawing from this story here? In the wilderness, Israel is dependent on the Lord to provide life-giving water for his people. 
but elsewhere in scripture, especially in the Psalms, the rock is a very common metaphor or image for God himself, for his steadfast love and protection of his people. Here's just a handful. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. For who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? O Lord, my God, or sorry, my rock and my redeemer. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And now the Lord comes and stands on this rock. He identifies himself with it. In Egypt, Moses uses the staff to strike the Nile and raise it against other things to bring punishment on Egypt. But now I think what the symbolism here is that uh, Paul is teasing out is that the people are bringing a lawsuit against Moses and against God saying, how dare you? Accusing God of being unfaithful. And what God is saying sort of in images, what he's foreshadowing is that ultimately to provide for his people, the rock which is the Lord must be struck with the staff that brings plagues and judgment. Paul sees that as a foreshadowing of Christ. Ultimately, Christ, our rock, must be struck by God's punishment so that life-giving water and blood can be provided for his people. That's the image Paul draws out of this. Being sustained by the Lord is ultimately very costly for the Lord. The Lord provides water for his people. Second, the Lord provides leadership for his people. Uh, This might not be quite as obvious. Their obvious need is for water, but they also have a real need for leadership. Back in Exodus chapter 2, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when Moses is a young man in Egypt, he sees two Israelites fighting and he tries to break up their fight. And the one who is in the wrong says to him, who made you a prince or leader and judge over us? And that's kind of the question, you know, what gives Moses the right to lead the people? Well, God calls Moses at the burning bush and sends him to Pharaoh. Once Israel leads Egypt, leaves Egypt, Moses several times calls to God and intercedes for his people. After the defeat of Egypt at the Red Sea in chapter 14, we're told the people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. But as yet, Israel has only acknowledged Moses as their leader by complaining against him. In a sense, they're saying, uh, If you have a problem, he's the guy to criticize. And so in a sense, they acknowledge his leadership, but in a really backwards way by criticizing him. Well, in Exodus 3, when God initially tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, he tells Moses to take the elders of Israel with him to see what happens. But the elders never go with him. Now again, when God tells Moses to go and strike the rock, he tells Moses again to take the elders of Israel with him to confront the Pharaoh or not to confront the Pharaoh, to see the rock struck. And this time the elders do go with him and we're told in verse six that Moses did exactly as he was told in the sight or literally before the eyes of the elders of Israel. The elders are now witnesses to the work that God does through Moses. And we see a shift from here on out, at least in the book of Exodus. In Numbers, they kind of get back to accusing Moses. But at least in the book of Exodus, there's a shift in the people's relationship to Moses as leader. Up to this point, they complain against him. And yet in the very next uh, episode, uh, two verses later, when an army attacks and Moses gives orders, everyone obeys without questioning. 
And then we're going to see next week in chapter 18, the people are lined up before Moses not to complain against him, but to bring their complaints before him so that he can act as their judge. Okay, who made Moses prince and judge over the people of Israel? Well, the Lord did. And now through the elders, they're starting to acknowledge that. The Lord leads his people into the wilderness, and then the Lord provides for his people. And then in the second half of this chapter, we see a new type of danger. And we see that the Lord protects his people. The Lord protects his people. After the Lord provides waters for Israel at at Rephidim, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. It's interesting that the narrator calls Israel's opponent by a singular name, Amalek. Uh, It's a personal name rather than calling them the Amalekites. It seems to focus our attention on the contrast between Jethro in the next chapter, Amalek in this chapter. Well, Genesis tells us that the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, so they're a sort of distant relative of Israel that should show them hospitality and help them. And instead, the Amalekites, these apparent nomadic raiders or marauders, living in this wilderness region, come to try to claim Israel's newfound water. They attack Israel. And when the Amalekites attack, the question that Israel has just posed in verse 7 is, is the Lord among us or not? Now, we start to see Moses' leadership in both his initiative and his intercession. His initiative and his intercession. First, Moses takes initiative. He doesn't wait for any explicit instructions from the Lord. The Amalekites are attacking, and he starts to issue commands to organize the army. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And see, Israel doesn't balk at the command or at Moses' initiative, but they obey what he says. They set out to battle. Joshua does what Moses tells him. He selects men and goes out to war. But second, Moses seems to know his own skill set and limitations, and he recognizes that as an 80-year-old man, perhaps going out to battle with the army is not the best use of his abilities. And so instead, he engages in the battle in a different mode through intercession, going up on the hill and raising his arms. Uh, The exact significance of that is never spelled out. He takes the staff with him, It says he raises his arms. Frequently in the Bible, raising arms has been a sign of, is a sign of prayer and worship. Uh, Earlier in Exodus, Moses is told a number of times to raise his arms over different things like the heavens and the land, and then plagues are brought by the Lord. And so maybe it's a sign again of God's presence with Israel fighting for them, that he trusts God to deliver them. Perhaps the army looks up and they see Moses' raised arms and it's a reminder of God's presence, that Moses is interceding for them. And probably it's kind of all three of those at the same time. Moses intercedes, lifting his hands as a sign of divine presence, fighting for Israel, and it's an encouragement to the army down below. So we see in Moses here and the way he reacts, a leader who combines initiative and intercession. And both are important parts of the life of faith. We need to pray, but that doesn't exempt us from good planning. On the other hand, we need to plan, but we need to remember that prayer is even more important. Prayer and planning, initiative and intercession are not contradictions, but complementary. They go together. 
One of the struggles of the Christian life is growing in maturity to know which is appropriate at each moment. Okay, when we're faced with a trial, is this a time I need to be planning? Is it a time I need to be praying? How do, or praying? How do I balance those two? And then in verse 12, we have this foreshadow of next week's episode. Uh, it's relatively easy to raise your arms over your head, but to keep them up there throughout the day, it gets hard. And Moses' hands grow heavy or weary. And so Aaron and her have to come alongside him. They put a stone under him to sit on and they help support his arms. Okay, Moses needs assistance, but he doesn't seem to recognize that himself. So he needs other people to come alongside him and point out his need for assistance. And so that really sets the scene for Jethro coming and the appointing of other judges to help Moses. So hang on to that uh, image for next week. Well, Moses' hands stay up throughout the day until the sunset. The battle is won. But what of the question? Is the Lord with Israel or not? Apart from that little reference to the staff of God, there's no mention of God or the Lord in verses 8 through 13. Okay, Moses goes up. He raises his hand. The army fights. They win the day. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Is the Lord with them or not? Well, what does Moses do at the very end of this chapter? He builds an altar and he calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner. A banner is like the sort of flag that an army carries into battle. It's the rallying point. It's what they follow. So what's Moses saying? He's saying the Lord is the leader, the banner, the rallying point for our army. He gives thanks for the victory to the Lord, not to his own initiative, not to Joshua's military prowess. The story ends with an acknowledgement that the Lord is indeed among Israel. So they build this altar and they name it, the Lord is my banner. And yet the point the story is making is that it's not always obvious that the Lord is present with us. Sometimes it's really obvious. There's a cloud, there's fire, there's divides of water. But other times, it's only looking back in retrospect with 2020 hindsight that we see that the Lord has been with us through a season of life. And that's part of the maturing process of the life of faith in the wilderness. Israel learning to see that the Lord is with them, even when it's not quite as obvious, even when it's not sort of massive fireworks drawing attention to God's presence. So what do we see in these stories the Lord leads his people into the wilderness, but they're not alone there. The Lord travels with his people. Our Lord Christ Jesus already has passed through the wilderness, faced the temptations and trials and triumphed so that we too, walking in his strength, can face the wilderness. The Lord provides for his people water in the wilderness, ultimately water from the rock that is Christ. And the Lord protects his people. In the Gospels, what do we see? We again see God's chosen leader go up onto a hill where he stretches out his arms to do battle, to protect his people. But this time, at the culmination of the Gospels, when his arms grow tired, there's no one to help. The men on either side can do nothing. The leader stays on the hill, his arms outstretched, interceding for his people to the point of death. Again, when the sun goes down on that day, the battle 
is won, but at the cost of the leader's own life. But the remarkable thing about what the Gospels tell us about the Lord's protection is that Jesus didn't just do that to protect his people from other human enemies. In Romans, Paul says, while we ourselves were God's own enemies, he did this work. That Christ Jesus goes up on the hill, stretches out his arms, intercedes on our behalf to protect us, not just from other humans, but to protect us from the wrath that we deserve for our own rebellion against God. Like Israel, we, we accuse God, we complain against him, we fail to trust him, we rebel in the wilderness, and so we deserve to be punished. But Christ Jesus protects us from the consequences of our own actions to deliver us with outstretched arms on the hill of Calvary. Let us pray. Lord, as strange as it is to say, we thank you that you lead us into the wilderness. We thank you that our home is in heaven, not here on earth. Help us to remember, Lord, that life here and now will never be finally, ultimately fulfilling in the way that the life to come will be. Lord, we face trials, we face temptations, we face opposition and exhaustion, and yet we look to you to sustain us, to provide for us, to protect us. Build us up in faith as we live through the wilderness as your pilgrim people. For those, Lord, perhaps who are in the phase of bringing accusations against you, who have not yet submitted to you, I ask that by your Spirit, you would apply the work of Christ, you would draw them to yourself, that in Christ's own leadership they would see your victory. For others of us, Lord, like Israel, we struggle and wonder, are you with us or not? Are you among us or not? We ask that we would once again look to that hill where Christ Jesus lifted his arms and in his victory see the sure proof that you are indeed with us, that you indeed will provide for us and protect us. Amen.